Well, good morning, Arcadia, and welcome. We are glad that you are here. Uh, I'm sorry, I have to do this. Is that Allison? Hi. All the way in from Texas. Gee whiz, this really is Easter. I'm telling you, this is awesome. How long of a drive was that for you? Oh, okay, you flew. All right, good. All right. Well, good. Wonderful to see you. Uh, so, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Arcadia. Um, if you're wondering what the horse trough is doing here, this is actually a baptistry. We are baptizing people today in our 7.30 this morning. We baptized four. We are baptizing another six here at 9 o'clock, so we're going to have that celebration after the message. That's, it is good news. And we got another couple in um, at the 10.45 as well, so a really good day. Um, I have no announcements. I want to tell you, in in case you're new, I want to let you know where you are. Uh, We are part of Redemption Church, Arizona. Redemption Church is one church with 10 congregations in the state of Arizona. We are the Arcadia uh, congregation. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. I actually have no announcements uh, today, which is good news, so we're going to get right to it. And so what I'd like you to do is please stand up again for the reading of God's Word. And actually, I'm going to be reading out of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So this is after the resurrection, to give you some context. It's Easter. We're assuming that everybody knows that he's risen at this point, and so we're going to look at what happens right after that. So here it is. Luke records these words. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So again, for context, during this Holy Week, what we have been uh, emphasizing is the life, the death, the resurrection, and then the ascension of Jesus. And if you're here on Easter and you're like, hey, we're supposed to talk about the resurrection on Easter, uh, we just talked about it. We assume that he is risen. What we want to talk about today is what does his ascension mean uh, for us today as much as it did for his uh, apostles and his disciples in their day as well. And it literally means that we are sent. And so we're going to be just going through these 11 verses, sort of clause by clause, not every clause, but we're going to go through these 11 verses, clause by clause, as Luke has recorded 
for us here. And so it's a comprehensive role for us to understand exactly what it is that we're expected to do. If you understand also that Jesus said that he was the first fruits of all of this, so he's ascending, we also will eventually rise to meet Jesus as he's coming to usher in the new Jerusalem. And so that's going to be um, our fate, our future as well, if we are in Christ. Uh, But we also want to find out what is going on with everything else in this passage. So that's what we're going to look at. What I'm going to do is um, we're going to have the clauses up on the screen for you to follow along, but also I would encourage you to have your Bibles open in front of you so you can follow along uh, as well. And we're going to start with verses 1 through 3. There's a lot in these three verses. And so the first thing I would say is notice that Jesus began to do and teach. He began that during his ministry here on earth. And the fact that he began, and now after the resurrection, he is still teaching, we need to understand that he is still teaching us even today. And what he teaches us through today is through this word. This is his word, God's word. It is Jesus' word poured out for us. And this is why we value the Bible at Redemption Church. We talk about it every week. We have messages out of it every week. We proclaim the gospel out of it every single week because it is the word of God. It is Jesus' words poured out. And then Jesus has also given commands to his apostles through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus went to the cross and then he was raised from the dead and he's still alive And and he said that's exactly what was going to happen to him, though people didn't believe it until they saw him raised. But the fact that he's raised and still alive, let me tell you something, if that doesn't give him authority in the lives of those of us who know Jesus, I'm not sure what will. The fact that he was raised from the dead, he's still alive, that allows him to have the authority to speak into our lives and even give commands to us. And, and, And again, we find these commands in his words. He gave them to his apostles who were with him, and then he also had his apostles pass those commands on to us. So what are his commands? Well, there's many of them, and I'm just going to review a few of them with you. Just understand, this is not even 5% of his commands, but here are some of the ones you might be familiar with and, and be helpful to you this morning. For instance, in Matthew 28, again, after his resurrection, in Matthew, a different uh, gospel than the one Luke wrote, He's with his disciples, again, before the ascension, and he says this, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's raised from the dead. He has all authority, and he's God. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and and behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So there we have Jesus giving the command that we are sent. We are to go into this world and tell people about Jesus. Then then Matthew 22, you back up a few, ver- uh, a few chapters. In Matthew 22, Matthew records this. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
So Jesus says, because I have loved you enough to go to the cross as an atonement, as a payment for your sin so that you can have eternal life, you are commanded to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you're to love others as uh, uh, your neighbors, everybody else as yourself. That's a command. And he says by doing that, you're going to fulfill anything that is said in the Law and the Prophets. That would be the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And then there's John chapter, tw- uh, chapter 3. He says to Nicodemus, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In, in order to uh, receive Jesus, you have to come and give your life to him. You have to say, yeah, I, I, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I've fallen short. And the only way I can be recognized to God, it, uh, uh, re- reconciled to God, is by coming and confessing my sins and accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That's called being born again. You have now been born again. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say, that when people would say, I'm a born-again Christian, he would say, well, that's redundant. If you're a Christian, you're born again. And if you're born again, you're, you're a Christian. And, and people say that all the time, and there's nothing wrong with it. But he's right. If you're a Christian, you have been born again, because that's what Jesus commands. Then there's Matthew 6. He says to his disciples, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So here's what he's saying. He's saying it's not that the things of the world are not important, but he's saying that you need to prioritize God and seek him first, and then all of these things in the world will fall into place of their own accord. So you need to seek God first in your life, and everything else will seem to fit where it needs to fit. When I do premarital counseling, one of the things that I tell the couples is that if you want to love each other really well, you got to seek to love God first before you love each other. That's how you're going to love each other. Marriage isn't, I'll get an amen on this. Marriage isn't for happiness, but for holiness. <laughs> it's for seeking holiness. And out of that seeking of holiness comes the happiness because then you have everything in their right priority. Here's the last one that I'll share with you this morning. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That's that agape love, that unconditional, selfless, compassionate love that he has for us because of his character. So out of the character he gives us by coming to him in repentance and faith, we are able to love others as well. So we we see these commands. And Jesus says he does this through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. We need to understand that anyone who has given their life to Jesus has the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwelling in him or her. And so we're also called to live by the conviction, the commitment, the correction, and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit in us. And so that also tells us that we don't fall for the lie that the Holy Spirit would ever guide us into anything that would contradict his word. In other words, if if you think the Holy Spirit is telling you something, Check it here, because the Holy Spirit will never tell you something that isn't confirmed here, or if he's telling you something that, is, uh, that, that strictly goes against what's in God's word, you know it's not the Holy Spirit. It's probably your spirit trying to justify something. Then he says, then Luke records, the apostles whom Jesus had chosen. Jesus chose them. Jesus chooses Now, I want to hit you with this, okay? If you're here today, Jesus has chosen you to be here for some reason. If you're here today, Jesus has chosen you to be his. You're saved, redeemed, and you're an integral part of the the kingdom of God. Or, 
Or, if you're not there yet, Jesus has chosen you today to hear how you can be his, that you can be saved, redeemed, and a part of the kingdom of God. Whatever it is, you've been chosen to be here. Some of you might even be sitting here as you, or as you walked in thinking, I'm not exactly sure why I'm here this morning. It seems a little bit odd to me, okay? But you've been chosen for that. Somehow you're here today. Maybe you're already a Christian. You're a part of Redemption Church Arcadia. This is your church. Of course, you're going to be here on Easter Sunday. Uh, I know that we have many Christians in from out of town today. And so they're in from out of town. So they're like, ah, it's Easter. I should probably go to church. Got on Google Maps, found that Redemption Church was the closest one. So you're here. Thank you for staying at a place close to our church. I appreciate that. Uh, Maybe you're here because a friend or a family member invited you, and you know it's an important day, so you said, all right, I'll come. So a friend or a family member may have invited you. Uh, Maybe you're here because you lost a bet to a friend or a family member, and this this is what you had to pay them. Or something simply prompted you to be at church this morning, and this was the church that you came to. Let me tell you something. It's amazing to me the number of people that I know who are are a part of this community who have said, I started coming here because I just thought I needed to start going to church, and this was the one that I came to. So that happens as well. But whatever it is, any of those things or something else, God is sovereign. We need to understand that. And so you're here because he's chosen this moment for you, chosen by God. And I know how uncomfortable or even agitated that can make some people that God would choose, that God has that authority and that sovereignty over your life, even when you don't acknowledge him, even when you don't think he does, or even for some Christians who say, I still have my own will and my own agency, but God is sovereign. One of the things that uh, I find interesting about this is how often you and I, we desire to be chosen for something. We pine to be chosen for something. We long, we desperately want to be chosen for something. Uh, my, my, uh, my, my text feed is filled with people saying, I've applied for a job. Will you pray that I get chosen for this job? Uh, how, how about chosen by a romantic interest? You're just dying to get chosen by that romantic interest. Or you, you want to be chosen for graduate school at an impressive university, say Grand Canyon University, for instance. Or maybe you've been, you want to be chosen to be a part of the team. I want to be on that team. I hope they choose me. Maybe you want to be chosen to be a leader or something or chosen for the big promotion. Or maybe you want to be chosen to be on Survivor or The Bachelor or something like that. But when it comes to Jesus, oh, no, no. God doesn't have that kind of power or authority over me. I'm the one who runs my life. I'm the one who decides what's best for me. That's me and my will. Nothing is in charge of me. Now, just so you know, that's not what the Bible teaches. And coincidentally, it wasn't my experience. Now, my experience doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be your experience, but it is not what the Bible teaches. And my experience happened to confirm what Scripture teaches. I was 27 years old, and I thought religion and Jesus people and church and all that stuff was a joke. And I was my own boss. I had my own will. I was very stubborn. And when I came to Christ, you need to understand, I came kicking and screaming all the way, saying, no, I am in charge of my life. 
But his call on my life was literally irresistible. I simply could not say no to it. Luke then records that Jesus suffered. He says, after suffering, oh boy, here we go. Here's another tough subject to tackle. When we do come to Christ, he is in you and you are in him. We are in Christ. Paul talks about this ad nauseum in his 13 letters in the New Testament. He he records 170-something times that we are in Christ. That's how important that reality is. And so being in Christ, that means that if you're a Christian, you're going to endure, I'm going to endure challenges, tribulation, trials, and suffering, just as Jesus did. You know, the Apostle Paul actually had a pretty good, trouble-free life until he, d- he decided that he was going to be a part of the kingdom of God, and Jesus came to him and brought him into the kingdom of God. Then Paul's life got really hard, and he suffered a lot. Read that story about Paul in the book of Acts. Same thing with the Apostle Peter, same thing with the Apostle John. They boiled John in oil trying to kill him, and somehow he survived that. Anybody been boiled in oil? Okay, so it's, it's a tough life. It's a tough life, but here you go. Every person goes through that. Every person recognizes that this world is hard, people are hard, and there is suffering and challenges and tribulation everywhere. The Bible promises that that's just the human condition, but it has an answer. Again, it's so interesting to me how so many people in this world still believe, after thousands and thousands and thousands of years of failure, they still believe that there's a system or a philosophy or some guru or a political ideology or a scheme or some technique that will give them a life of freedom, a life free of problems, a life free of suffering, and a life free of challenges. Here you go. That life does not exist. It just doesn't exist. But what being with Jesus does mean is this. He's with us in our trials and challenges, leading and guiding and refining us. If you remember from Isaiah 40 through 55, we talked a lot about how God refines us through these trials for good, for perseverance and steadfastness. Second of all, we know that the trials and challenges have purpose because God is sovereign and he's involved in that. And so as tough as it is, we know that they have purpose. And finally, these trials and challenges will result in a perspective in a redemption and in a wisdom that is for our good and for God's glory. Again, I have some uh, passages to look at in this regard. Uh, Paul records this in Philippians chapter 3. He's talking about how he used to live this life of religious perfection, and now that he's come to Christ, he writes this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything that he did before, all the success he had before, he said it's, it's not that it isn't important, it's just that I count it as loss because knowing Christ is so much more important. He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or some moral code, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then this part I love, because there's a little bit of a change in it. Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him, and, uh, and I may, that I may share in his sufferings. Okay, wait a minute, share in his sufferings? I didn't know about that part. I have to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He'll go through anything in order to have Christ. John 16, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that you may have peace because in the world you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome this world. And then 1 Peter 4, uh, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, I know a lot of people who, like, they'll come to Christ thinking, if I just come to Christ, if I just acknowledge God is real, then God kind of owes me this really easy life, and then suddenly these fiery trials, and it's like, God, why is this happening to me? Peter says, don't be surprised. You're going to be living in this world as a person of faith. There's going to be some challenges that uh, come to you. It's very important to understand that. And then Luke records about the kingdom of God. He says, we're going to be a part of the kingdom of God. We are a a, a, a part of the kingdom of God. Have you noticed that there are kingdoms everywhere? There are kingdoms everywhere. Geographic kingdoms, national kingdoms, corporate kingdoms. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you are part of a corporation that's trying to build a kingdom? Okay, Personal kingdoms. Kingdoms, political kingdoms, financial kingdoms, royal kingdoms. You know, there's even religious kingdoms created by those who use religion to manipulate people for money, for gain, for power, for abuse. Here's here's another example about this kingdom building thing. Um, There's this, I know most of you in this room probably Christians, and so you've never seen this television show. And and I haven't seen it either. It just happened to be in the background of somebody else watching it all five seasons. And so I heard this. But even Breaking Bad got this correct. Okay? During the last season, Walter White, the main character, he's this mild-mannered, nice guy. He's a high school chemistry teacher. He gets cancer and he can't pay for his chemo treatments. And so he devises a plan. He just wants to pay for his chemo treatments because his high school has a terrible health plan. That's all it is. That's all he wants to sell a little meth, get his chemo, get, get, rid, of, get rid of his cancer. That's all it is. That's all that he's going to do. In the last season, season five, however, Walter White has been transformed from a guy just trying to pay for his chemo treatments into a ruthless man who, when he was offered $5 million to get out of the meth business, got angry at Jesse and said to him, I did not get into this business for the money. I got into this business to build an empire, to build a kingdom. There are kingdoms everywhere. Everybody's trying to build a kingdom. But no matter how strong or meticulous or resourced a kingdom is, a kingdom that has been built in this world will eventually fall. Even the Roman Empire fell. Even the Roman Empire fell. But the kingdom of God will never fall. It's the only one that endures forever and ever and ever. And Jesus is the king. Now verses 4 and 5, let's look at those again. What Jesus' ascension affirms for us today. Jesus says, you've got to wait for the promise of the Father. Key word there, wait. This is a good reminder for us that quite often God calls us to wait. And that's not an easy thing to do, is it? To wait? Okay, how many of you just, how many of you wake up in the morning and you say, you know, I'm going to go wait somewhere for an hour. That sounds like a lot of fun, you know? Just drive somewhere and wait, okay? Maybe a doctor's office or something. I don't know. Whatever. But consider their situation. 
Jesus is their leader. He's the one that they thought would change the world. And then he gets executed. They saw it. They know he's dead. Like, how, how is that? He was going to change the world. But, but now, but now, even after the Roman government has assured everybody officially that he's dead and he's been put in a tomb, now Jesus is alive and he's with them. He's been raised from the dead. And they're like, this is amazing. It's really going to happen. But they're just supposed to sit there and wait? They aren't allowed to go and tell the world what has happened? The most incredible thing that God has ever done raised Jesus from the dead and now he's going to ascend and they have to wait 40 more days? They were chomping at the bit. They didn't want to wait. But we need to learn to wait on God. Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit. But they were not supposed to start their ministry until the Holy Spirit got there. Again, just as we studied in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, You know, the Jews, when they went into exile, 600 years before Jesus came, when they went into exile, Isaiah and God were telling them, you're going to be redeemed, you're going to be restored, you're going to be saved from this exile, but you're going to have to wait for it to happen. 70 years. And a thousand years before that exile, when they were in slavery in Egypt, God came to them and took them out of their slavery in Egypt. Part of the Red Sea, everything gave them manna from heaven to, to be able to survive. But even then, he said, you're going to have to wait 40 years before you get to enter the promised land. You're going to wander around for 40 years. You're going to wait. But we need to recognize that God knows what he's doing. And I know we get anxious and impatient, but God's timing is always better than ours. We've talked about this before. You know how... Uh, people will say quite often, you know, God's not answering my prayer. Well, actually, he is. He's just not giving you the answer that you were hoping for. You had a plan, and God was just supposed to affirm it, and that was it. God answers every prayer. He says yes, no, or what? Wait. Wait is one of his answers. Not yet. Wait. I can't tell you how many people I have talked to who have told me, You know, I would rather God just said no than tell me to wait. That's how difficult it is to wait. And yet God is a God of covenant and promise. And so he says, there are times when you're going to have to wait. And then Jesus says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We talked about this a little before. We'll talk about it again. If you are a Christian today, the Holy Spirit, God, dwells in you. Have you embraced this truth? Do you realize that God is there? You need to welcome him. You need to acknowledge him. He's there. He's waiting to be stirred up. He's waiting to be welcomed. He's waiting to be acknowledged. Or do you find him just more of a bother and so you kind of try to keep him suppressed? Because you don't like it those times when he tells you something that you really don't want to hear. You know, the Holy Spirit reveals God to us. There's no other way I would have been saved if the Holy Spirit hadn't worked in my life. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand Scripture. I had no idea what this book was saying before I came to Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts that we use to serve others and to serve the church. The Holy Spirit convicts us of things that we most certainly need conviction about. The Holy Spirit corrects us, turns us around. And the Holy Spirit advocates for us in prayer to the Father. This is one of the great gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're going to do Romans 8 the next seven weeks, and during that time, we're going to see where Paul writes that when, when we're in such desperate trouble, when we're suffering and bad challenges, tribulation, all that, we're in such desperate trouble in our lives that we can't even articulate a prayer 
Uh, Paul says that the Holy Spirit carries those prayers for us to the Father and advocates and intercedes on our behalf for us, even when we cannot articulate the prayer. The Holy Spirit is a blessing to be welcomed and not a challenge to be managed. And then those last few verses, 6 through 11, Jesus' ascension also affirms for us today. Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times, not for you to know when I'm coming back again. It's not the only time Jesus says this. I mean, how many times does Jesus have to tell us that nobody's going to know exactly when he's going to come back? Nobody's going to know exactly when he's going to come usher in the new Jerusalem and restore this universe for us and, and, to, and to redeem us into that ordered and uncorrupted condition that we found in the Garden of Eden in chapter 2 of Genesis. And yet deceivers abound. There are so many ministries out there that are built on somebody saying, ah, but I know when he's coming. And if you just give me the right amount of money, I'll be able to let you in on the inside. It's amazing how many people are able to do that and get away with that kind of a ministry. Deceivers abound. Listen, we don't know because it's in the hands of God and he knows best. And consider this, if we knew, would that take any faith? See, we're called to faith. We're called to trust him. We're called to believe in him. If we knew, there wouldn't be any point in having faith. But he says, paradise will be restored. He says, not for you to know when, but it will be restored. It's not that God isn't up to something. He is. He's determined to fix this mess. And he's the only one who can. How long, how long have we humans been trying to fix everything that's wrong in this world? How long have we been doing that? Just, just a few thousand years, that's all. And it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Our track record is pretty miserable for fixing stuff. And again, we're already starting to get riled up about 2024. That's when it's going to happen. We're going to get those Republicans back. We're going to quell that Republican rebellion. It's going to be our person in there. And we're going to finally have everything that we want to fix all these problems. That scares the snot out of me. Because God's the only one who can fix this. And he's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of it in his own time. And we just need to... Trust him. Don't trust me on that. Trust him. And then he says we're going to receive power by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a reiteration again of the point we made about the Holy Spirit. We have access to the creator God of the universe. He dwells in us. But here's the thing. That power of the Holy Spirit in us is different than any other power that we understand or see or even are a part of in this world. This power is humble. This power is teachable. This power is other-focused. It's not selfish. This power endures challenges. And this power testifies to the reality of Jesus in our lives. And then he says, you will be my witnesses. If you're in Christ, it's, it's also a call upon your life to tell others about Jesus. Literally, we testify. We're witnesses to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We give our testimony. We are sent by the way, anybody, we have some seminary students in here. Anybody know what the Greek word translated witness is? Anybody? It's martyr. It's the word martyr. Okay? There's, there's Peter again. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial that will come against you as though something strange were happening to you. I was talking to somebody uh, in, in the, uh, before the first service started. He puts up a 
a cross in his neighborhood every year around Easter time and, and was talking about how last night it was torn down and, and destroyed. You know, people don't like to hear about this stuff. People don't want to know about it. You know, that's something that is going to come, but we're called to that. I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wanted to kill followers of Christ, and then Jesus saves him, and the next thing you know, he's being thrown in a ravine and, and stoned by people. I mean, that's, that's I, I don't think anybody in this room is going to get stoned. I don't think that's ever going to happen to you. But you need to understand that there's going to be resistance to us. But the good news is that he will come again. So Luke records that as well. He will come again. Those who know Jesus live in the assurance and hope that he's going to be back and everything is going to be made right and we're going to be with him. Those who don't know Jesus mostly live in what they perceive is or what could be a carefree life if they could just get the things right in their life. But the reality is is that there is a day when everyone is going to have to square up with God. Do you know Jesus? So it's the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. That's, That's Easter. We live in the days of the ascension. We are sent. We live in the knowledge of Jesus' resurrection and his anticipated second coming, and we look forward to that. And we live with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. As Paul says so often in his letters, let us walk out our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel calling in our life. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we... This is an amazing day to remember exactly what it is that you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, and that he is risen, he's alive, he is sitting at your right hand, and he has the entire universe, metaphorically, literally, however you want to say it, sitting in his hands. So God, we thank you for who Jesus is, we thank you for his love for us, that he would do this for us. And so, God, as we contemplate the fact that we're here today hearing about your good news, I just pray that, um, that we would be uh, people who would have the courage to be able to acknowledge you as Savior, that you're real, that what happened to you uh, is something that was for our good and for your glory. We're so thankful for that. And so, God, when we come to you, I just ask that we would, uh, we would have the humility to be able to allow you to be the one that directs and guides our life. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.